The subject matter contained in this presentation is based on biblical principles and designed to give you accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that neither the presenter nor the broadcaster is engaged to render legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Since your situation is fact-dependent, you may wish to additionally seek the services of an appropriately licensed legal, accounting, real estate, or investment professional. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more important than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single moment to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothes? Learn from the way the wildflowers grow. They do not work or spin, but I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry and say, What are we to eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. This is Radio Wave Medjinomics with your host, a friend of Medjugorje. Do you feel like you've been dragged along in your day? Many people get up, they go to work, or they go to school, they do the things that they do. It's not necessarily how they would plan out their day if they could. We're part of a system that dictates to us where we're going, what we'll do that day, how to do it, so many rules, so much restriction. Actually, it's enslaved us. We are slaves to the system. This system has taken over. It has you doing things that you don't necessarily want to do, but you have to. But they aren't seen necessarily as immoral. It's just part of the system. It's the way things are. I learned a long time ago in my business when I was young that I had to dictate my day or the day would dictate my day. You can't leave it up to that control of the system. And it's hard to do that. I began to write down tomorrow 
everything I needed to accomplish the next day, the people I needed to see, who they were and why or whatever. And I was very protective in that. And I took more and more control of what I was doing. But still, even in that and in business, there was things that dictated to me, things that wasted my time or preoccupied my time, or things I didn't want to be involved with my time. So we're in a world today that has people doing many things that they don't want to necessarily do. There's a book that was produced in 2015 called Swimming with the Sharks. Well, we brought Jason and one of the community members into the studio today because he'd read this book and told me some things on it. I have not had an opportunity to read it, but what it said and what he was telling me I liked. So I wanted him to bring in some points about this because it actually has a lot to do with what Medianomics is about and why we began this program. And it's something that you need to know. I know people come up to me often, what's the new book you're reading? And they read everything recommended. Because we don't just read any book, we read the best books. And this circles around in the community. Usually if we've got a good book, everybody in the community will end up reading it. And this is probably one of those we'll read. You might think the subject matter may not be that interesting, but it's very necessary for you today to navigate through the world where it drags you along all day long from one day to the next. So I'm going to let Jason make some comments on this, and we'll discuss it today. The book Swimming with Sharks is written by the author Joris Leendick, and it's actually one of, the, one of the better things about the book is that the author was an outsider in regards to the financial world. He was an anthropologist by his education and didn't really know much about the financial system. And so throughout the course of his work with the book, uh, he interviewed about 200 people who work in the banking world. Go ahead, Jason, explain real quick anthropologists. An anthropologist, just in general terms, just as a typical example, is somebody who goes out and studies a people or a culture or a situation. For example, some anthropologists might go out to a tribe in South America, stay with them for an extended period, and study those people. And one of the overarching principles for anthropologists, as this author explains, is that they delay judgment as long as possible. They study these people, they study the situation, whatever they're looking at, and they don't judge it. They do their best to just collect that information, delay that judgment as long as possible, and then and then maybe even in the end not even pass a judgment on it, but just display the results that they've come across. So this author was an anthropologist by trade, so to speak, and he studied the banking world, particularly in London, England, along this same methodology, where he interviewed these people, did his best to collect that information and, and not pass judgment initially. But what he found uh, in the course of these interviews, and just in the knowledge after the 2008 crash, the financial crisis, was that people like to point to a few bad apples, they like to point to a few bad characteristics of the system to cast blame on that. And that makes us feel good that we've, we've rooted out the bad apples, we've, we've passed a few laws and, and new regulations. But the conclusion that he comes to is that the banking world is not populated by a bunch of just evil people. Yes, there are some bad apples in there who are motivated strictly by greed. But a lot of these bankers, um, and in particular we're referring to investment bankers, those who are buying and trading stocks and bonds uh, rapidly every day in the, in the millions and billions of dollars, 
but there's there's good people working there, but they really are stuck in a system that they cannot change. They have no incentive to change. They operate under the belief that if I speak out against the abuses, that will change nothing. There's simply nothing that can be done. You have an interplay between governments who are making money off these banks, the shareholders who are making tons of money off of the profits of these banks, the individual traders themselves who are making tons of money, and yet, as he describes in the book, have zero loyalties to the banks themselves, and the banks have zero loyalties to the traders who are making all these trades. There's just a system of incentives, of corruption, that simply cannot be reversed. He makes an effort at the end of the book to, to offer what he believes to be you know, some concrete solutions about regulation, and yet at the same time, in the book he's saying, and even the bankers themselves are saying, regulation will mean nothing. These people are, are super sophisticated. You pass one law, they'll find another way around it. And the more regulations they add, the more complex it becomes. And they just simply find ways to continue going around that. This is, uh, of course, what every law is about. It's to regulate a few who's done something, but it restricts everyone. And it, and it breeds this kind of thing. In other words, every law is a new restriction on your freedom. You say, well, laws are supposed to be good. No, usually they end up in a bad situation and it falls into so much regulations and then so many interpretations of regulations that we lose our freedom. God gave us 10 commandments. And if you think about that, it covers every single thing out there. Everything from God is always so simple. It's always so straightforward. And so we have honesty. Thou shalt not steal, which needs to be in the banking industry. But they don't see it as stealing. It's part of the system that drags them along through the day without even realizing. It ain't going to happen. It's all about usury. And this is one of the greatest crimes taking place that's unseen. I got a banker friend that's way up in the banks. And before the 2008 crash, I saw him. He, he, he said he was scared. He said, I'm, I'm scared. And this book, I know, swimming with the sharks speak about that, that uh, people were scared what they were going to do. They were calling, getting ready. When things started crashing in 2008, you might want to elaborate a little bit that was about to happen. They were frantic. And regulations can't fix that. Laws can't fix that because all that creates a system of, uh, more finesse and trying to get around the regulations and trying to comply because even as a nonprofit, we can do something in our mission that's not necessarily illegal, but because of your tax exempt status. One way you can do it, you frame it another way and do exactly the same thing, and it's okay with the government. And so you're doing the same thing, but you got to comply with these hoops and jump over here and do this and do that. But you're doing the exact same thing. And so we're restricted going one way, we're unrestricted the other way. And we've built this complex society, and that's part of our loss of peace in, in our day, in our life, because we haven't lived the commandments. That's why they say, just live my commandments. These restrictions, these laws go away. But you can elaborate on some of that. Maybe two points that you mentioned just a second ago I should highlight with, that the book really draws out is one is the reality of the 2008 crash, and two is complexity. 
just by the words of the bankers themselves in this book, they were very, very terrified, calling, literally calling family members and telling them to move assets from one bank to another. Just before the 2008 crash. Right before the 2008 mm-hmm. crash. Calling family members saying, hey, go get food, go to the countryside. But they were looking around at the rest of the world and watching them go you know, about business as usual. But those in the banking industry knew just how serious it was. And it's not just a matter of a couple banks fail and, you know, the banking system in America experiences a disruption, but that when you begin to disrupt the banking system, that disrupts the entire world's banking system. And all it takes is the beginnings of a lack of faith in the credit of another bank where one banking, maybe a nation or, or a banking company stops giving credit. That leads to a domino effect where basically as faith diminishes, credit stops. And like it or not, there's so much lending and borrowing and writing of checks. And you just think about the whole function of the commerce system. Everything can very quickly just come to a grinding halt because nobody wants to give anybody else money. So you're talking transportation, food production, medical systems, everything that relies on the banking system ceases to continue functioning because we rely so much on those credit systems. But say what they they called their wives and told them to do. They called their wives and told them to take the children out to the countryside, go to the grocery store and start hoarding food. Um, all those things that sound kind of panicky, they were calling their families to do this that. Is, this is the people that's in charge of the money. And go to the ATM machines, all of them, and get all the cash you can get out. And they go buy gold. Anywhere you can find gold, immediately go buy that. Right. And, the, and one of the points again that he really brought about is the complexity of all these financial products and just the banks themselves. You, We know the phrase that the banks are too big to fail, but he also draws out the point, the author does, that these banks are too big to be understood even now, too complex where even the upper management, the CEOs and the management of the banks don't really have a grasp on the complexity and the magnitude of the risks because it's not possible for them to anymore. The banks are so compartmentalized each separate group or division is kind of operating on its own they're very much uh, operating to maximize profit and in the past the owners of the banks had their personal finances at stake so they exercised a lot more control and had a much larger stake in the risks that were being borne by those who were underneath them doing the trading whereas now the shareholders bear those risks and it's what a lot of those in the banking industry refer to as Well, we're dealing with other people's money now. It's not our own money. So those CEOs, yeah, their bonus is on the line, but their personal wealth is not in the same way. And so they don't have to have a grasp on the complexity, and it's not even possible really even anymore. In other words, the risk has shifted from those who are taking the bet on hedging or investments. There's nothing. They don't have a dog in the fight. They're playing with somebody else's money. And that's easy to do. And it's easy to be more reckless with it if it's not yours. Because like Warren Buffett says, manage your own money. Why? Because you can't do what these other people do. You think, but you can. And this is something you, you always should do is be watching out what you do and how you do it. The best thing to do is how do you keep control over it? That's why we designed the miraculous metal measure go around. That brings all your assets into your scope as far as where you reach, what you do, and where you go with it. It may not be the investments that we see these gigantic leaps on the stock markets, but that's speculative. And if you make great profits with it, you make great losses with it. 
We've talked about that before. Wealth gained quickly is quickly lost. And you got to stabilize it. You got to get the, the boat out of the, the stormy waters into the bay where it, it settles. And silver is that. These bankers are amazing. They don't tell you to go buy silver or go. But when I read one section of the book that it said, go out and buy a metal. Why would they do that? And why do they wait till the day before something happens or the moments it gets that way? I'll tell you, my baker friend, he, I never saw him the way I saw him when he was talking to me. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm scared. But he was scared to tell me what was going on because at that time I didn't know how serious the situation was. I did have somebody else that had 100 banks he was involved with call me and says, hey, for Caritas, you got to protect it. If you'll get any money in the bank, get it out. I said, why? He says, we've never seen what's coming. He told me that three or four months before it, it crashed. And, of course, Caritas doesn't have a lot of money, so I wasn't worried about it. But we did shift some things. We did pay for some equipment we were about to buy at that time. But these things are there, and it's not going to go away. Maybe one of the most important aspects, and kind of to sum up the entire book, is the introduction to uh, that he writes, where he kind of describes the summation of all the interviews, if he had to capture it in one image or one, one idea. He talks about it. He gives an example of being on a plane, and I'll just read that here. It's very short, but it really captures the gravity of the situation that we're in. He begins the entire book with this introduction. You're on a plane. The seatbelt signs have been switched off. You've just been given your drink, and now you're trying to decide between the in-flight entertainment and your book. The man next to you is quietly sipping his drink, while you gaze absently through the window at the sun and the clouds. Suddenly, you see a gigantic flash of fire coming out of one of the engines. You call the flight attendant. Yes, she says, there were some technical difficulties, but it's all under control. She looks so composed and confident that you almost believe her, but you get up, unable to contain your alarm. First, the relaxed flight attendant, and then an officious cabin manager try to stop you as you make your way towards the front of the plane. Sir, please go back to your seat. You push them aside, grab the cockpit door, manage to open it, and there is nobody there. So where are they? Well, they're there, in a sense but there's nobody with their hand on the controls. And again, the point he kind of draws out in the end is... They're out of control. They're out of control, and it's just too big. And they've gone to the country with the kids with the gold and all the hoarded food. Right. It's so big that... They jumped out in a parachute, in other words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the idea he draws out you know, is that the system is running itself. There's nobody really in control anymore, and it, it draws up these ideas of revelation and the beast and the you know, the 666, and that you can neither buy nor sell, that not even the bankers themselves can buy it nor sell without the system, that the system, it is the system now. It's not people running it. It's a gigantic machine like this gigantic plane um, with a lot of people on board, but nobody's running it anymore. It's, it's running itself. It is a beast, and that's what happened. There's things so big now that even the CEOs and the boards aren't running it. It runs itself. It takes on a form of life. And you have many good people in these organizations, even on the boards. It's like what the Cardinal told me, which I've said many times through the years. He says, we have many good people doing bad things. And they don't even realize it's a bad thing because it doesn't have the appearance of being bad. 
And you want to cover things up and you want to, you want to protect this. You want to do that because you think you're protecting the savings of the, of your clients. And in actuality, you're not. The best thing is, is self-correction. So that thing's crash when it crashes only one story. But you start protecting it and you're up 120 stories. And then that's a crash and nobody survives a fall like that. You actually can fall out of a building one story. You may be broken up a little bit, but you can survive. But not 120 stories. You're not going to. And that's where we're all right there with these things. And a lot of that's because people have got their aspirations and their goals set by somebody else, not by themselves. And that's what the whole thesis of Mejanomics and the miraculous metal magic go around is to put things totally under your control, not somebody else piloting your finances and the plane and the engine's on fire. And if it's on fire and you're controlling your finances, you're not worried about it. And that's what Joan has to read about today. This comes from the book Die Broke by Stephen Poland and Mark Levine. And they write, Abandoning the Pursuit of Perfection Have you found that you're never satisfied with what you achieve? I'm amazed by how many of my clients, arguably among the most successful people in America, are dissatisfied with themselves and their lives. They're trapped in one of the great catch-22s of capitalism. No matter how rich they are, there's always someone richer. No matter how powerful their computer, there's always one that's more powerful. No matter how successful they are at their profession, there's always someone who's more successful. They're convinced that life is a zero-sum game, that there's one winner, and everyone else is a loser. They're convinced the perfect job, or home, or car is out there, if only they can find it. I think this self-defeating chase after perfection is just a symptom of following the old world's rules in pursuit of someone else's goals. When you're told to keep climbing the ladder until you get to the top rung or fall off into the abyss, you're being taught that only perfection is good enough. We had... Our house opened last Saturday, May 13th, the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the apparitions in Fatima. And for those who were there, you saw the house, and people always say, your house is beautiful, we love your house. We've had many people ask us, can you give me a plan of your house? And there's many mansions out there that far exceed what our house is. But this writing that Joan just read speaks of people going to make their goals on somebody else's goals. In the t- my 20s, I set a goal of where I wanted to be in the 80s and 90s. Not talking about dates. I'm talking about my age. And so we built a house with plans, my wife and I, that was going to have us to raise our family. They move on. They come back with grandchildren, a large number of them. And still be small enough for us to be living in it with just the two of us. It's a designed home to live perfectly from the beginning of your life to the end of your life. Even considering, do we want to go upstairs when we're older? So we put one bedroom downstairs. So we wouldn't be climbing the stairs. 
It's not a problem for me even now at 64. But it may be, and it may be so for my wife. But in other words, I took control of my goals instead of letting the day be dictated by other people. And we spent eight years building the house. We wasn't working on it continually on eight years. We worked on it when we got a good job or profit off a job. We put the money into it and moved into it debt-free. And the home has memories. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's modest all at the same time. It's got all these things. And this is what I was trying to show us. Don't be caught up by the glitter of modernism and consumerism. You take control and make your goals. And that means you have to bring in control of your own finances, your monies, your savings. And again, that's one reason we designed the Miraculous Magic Around. So you and I could sanctify our funds. Or if you have savings, mine's in my house. Mine's in the way I live. Ours is in the tomato plant into the cow. So we can live not with cash, but without cash. It's a beautiful thing. How you, people always are trying to find the loopholes because so many regulations again. The whole tax system. How do you avoid it? How do you do it this way? This way is illegal. This way is illegal. We are avoiding sales tax constantly. We are avoiding income taxes constantly. We found a loophole. And that's not illegal. But we raise the cow that eats the grass, that we grow the grass, so that we eat the cow. A whole cow, how much sales tax would be involved with that? Every time we go buy a steak, hamburger meat, this, that. A lot of money. How much money would we pay for income taxes to get that income that's not taxed just to buy the meat? You bypass the system if you're coming out of the soil, and that's real wealth, and it's untaxed. Now, it might not be if things turn like in the Middle Ages where the serfs had to give everything, or a tenth of it, or a twentieth of it, or whatever they did. But God's way is the uncomplex way. It's the simple way. He says, live simply. Be simple. The banking system is a system of complexity, which invites... We can make money off this side of it. We can make money this way. On the goings and the comings, the losses and the gains. They make money no matter what. And you're the guinea pig and you're part of it. We're talking a lot about finances on this program today on the broadcast. You might think, I don't want to hear these things. This is a necessity to everything. This gets you out of life of sin, actually. It brings you back into a simple life. As a complex subject, what are we talking about? We're talking about getting away from the system. Building your little plot of land, getting out in the country what nobody in the banking system is subscribing to, except they know the reality instantly when things are on the verge. What I got to do? I got to get to the country. Got to get my kids out of here. I got to get my guns. I got to get the ammo. I got to do all these things because there's going to be hordes of people running around. I had a banker tell me that, a central bank guy. He even said so much is what we've talked about. You've heard me say maybe in the past. Then in three days, people are going hungry. They start stealing. After 15 days, they become savages. Even the Christians will do that. Hunger makes people do things that they would never do and justify themselves in what they do as moral, which would be immoral. If there's maybe one 
kind of image I could close with as far as the book is concerned, it would be that he, that he mentions in the book would be this, uh, what it's like when you narrowly miss a car crash. And that's what the 2008 financial crisis was, that if you're driving down the road and you narrowly miss a head-on collision, you have this surge of adrenaline, you feel this, this pumped up feeling, wow, and your thought at the time is, I nearly, I almost just died. But then as you drive farther away, as the, as the vision of this near crash recedes into the rearview mirror, you very easily shift to the thought of, we survived. You move from the idea of, one, we nearly died, to, we survived that near miss. And that's the same thing that happened with the crisis of 2008. We're nine years past that now. Things feel good. There's been a lot of nice words said by politicians and those in industry and regulators. But the fundamentals of what's wrong with the system still exist. We feel a lot better about that. And the, and the purpose of this book and, and the show is not to create fear, but to give an accurate picture that things were super, super serious in 2008. And they don't feel like it now, but they still are. And we are on the brink from one day to the next of this crisis coming back to us. So I just got through releasing a writing called The Truth About Saving the World. It's a must read. You have to read this and you have to study it till you learn what it says. It's a critical, important writing because it's about what is so big that can no longer be controlled because it's beyond the possibility of being able to turn it around. You have these huge sh cargo ships, and if they had to turn around 180 degrees in, in the ocean, it takes miles to do that. You have a freight train going. If he stops because he had a car crash, it takes a mile to stop these things. And the train can't turn around. Let's go way down the track to go through switch tracks. They made him 100 miles out of the way to even make the turn. By then, whatever the catastrophe was is over. And so we have these systems, and the truth about saving the world is about the church. It's so big, and the problems and complexities is in it, which there is great problems in the church. Our lady is here because the church is very, very troubled in where it is right now at this moment. It's increasingly decreasing and losing what it's supposed to be. I can say that with authority, and that's why our lady is here. We did a program that's also with his writing. The evening is the 13th, May 13th, last Saturday, that you have to listen to. We didn't get it finished in his production, so we were refining it. It'll be back on, should be back on by the time you hear this. But it's critical to listen to because it talks about the smoke of Satan has entered into the church. And there's something else I won't mention to you that's incredible that happened in 1917 about something about 2017. you got to listen to it. It'll blow you away. Why? Because the church is so big, it can't be fixed on its own power. Something external from God has to come to change it. And that's why the Virgin Mary is here. And she's going to change everything through her plan that's God's plan that she's delivering to us to be exposed to show how things will be done that if every member of the population in the world is converted and changed, or the majority, then all the institutions come under control. Because we throw out the regulations. We defy the regulations. We're not going to go by them anymore. How do we rebel against that? How do we defy them? 
simply start living the commandments, there will no longer be any applications of the rules to be followed. Because everything will work according to ten rules, ten commandments, ten laws. And that, my friend, is the answer to everything. And that's the answer you'll also hear on this broadcast last Saturday. Our Lady is the answer. And you'll find out where to find that when you listen to it. So make it your duty to read the truth about saving the world and to listen to the broadcast Satan's Century, Our Lady's Century. We wish you Our Lady. We love you. Goodbye. The subject matter contained in this presentation is based on biblical principles and designed to give you accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that neither the presenter nor the broadcaster is engaged to render legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Since your situation is fact-dependent, you may wish to additionally seek the services of an appropriately licensed legal, accounting, real estate, or investment professional. This ends the Metronomic Show with a friend of Mechigoria. To order this show on CD, you can contact Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000. Again, 205-672-2000.